0: The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investech are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? In much of the conversations surrounding China and Taiwan these days, the question of invasion seems to be a when, not an if. But is an invasion really so inevitable? No one knows for sure, of course, but there are good reasons to think that speculations of a war have been overblown. For one, the economic links between Taiwan and China mean that their respective interests are not so zero-sum. For another, China may well be causing serious damage to itself through an invasion. This episode of Chinese Whispers presents the case for the defence that invasion is not, in fact, inevitable. Later on the episode, I'll be joined by Charles Parton, former British diplomat in China and Taiwan, who contributes to the analysis of numerous foreign policy and defense think tanks, including Rusi and the Council on Geostrategy, to understand why he doesn't think an invasion would happen. But first, to give you an idea of just how much Taiwan and China are currently linked by trade, I spoke to Professor William Kirby of Harvard University, who's an expert on the business environments in Taiwan and China. I started by asking him to give an overview of the complicated trade links between those two sides of the strait.
1: Well, they are, mainland China is Taiwan's greater greatest trading partner, much larger than the United States or the European Union. And their trade, despite the tensions over the last uh, several years, have been growing. Taiwan's imports over the last five years from mainland China have grown by about 87%. And its exports to the mainland have grown by 71% over this period of time. And this is largely in those areas in which Taiwan is a dominant player in the world, which is in electronics and in, in semiconductors, but not only in that. It is a robust trading relationship, although it shows signs of fraying at the political edges. The government of Taiwan has encouraged Taiwan businesses to invest rather less in their next investment in the mainland and rather more, say, in Southeast Asia or in other Mm. countries. You see some firms that really are at the center of the mainland Taiwan trade, such as Apple, relocating some facilities, in this case Foxconn, a Taiwan company that assembles iPhones in China, relocating some of its production facilities outside of mainland China, But it is still a very robust and, to Taiwan, very important trading relationship.
0: It's really interesting that semiconductor focus in particular, because something that was noted last year after the Pelosi visit to Taiwan was that the Chinese stopped importing Taiwanese things like pineapples and beer, but not semiconductors, not the vast volume or value of the trade.
1: No, no, no. Although Taiwan makes, I think, the world's best pineapples, they were denied access to the mainland market. It was the United States, uh, not the mainland China nor the government of the Republic of China on Taiwan. It was the United States that has limited some Taiwan chip exports to the mainland. For example, uh, forcing uh, Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company uh, to give up its largest mainland client, which is Huawei.
0: I want to talk about semiconductors in particular, because TSMC, Taiwan's, you know, what some people have called their Silicon Shield, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, it actually does produce in China, doesn't it? It produces in the mainland, has a factory in Nanjing and a factory in Shanghai. So that, as well as Foxconn that you've named, you know, these major companies, they have on the ground investments. And what's interesting is that the U.S. sanctions are trying to sever those links
1: Well, they haven't severed those links in the mainland. That is to say, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, went into the mainland in the first decade of the 21st century. And why did they go? They went there not to put their highest-end manufacturing in mainland China, because they worried about intellectual property issues, and they had some intellectual property issues with a major Chinese competitor. But they were there to be closer to their customers, Those customers being largely international firms assembling electronic devices in China. And the first one was in Nanjing. The second one was in Shanghai. And as I recall, I wrote my first Harvard Business School case on TSMC around 2008, 2009. And I worked with the then chairman, Morris Chang. And my working title for that case was Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, colon, a Taiwan company's China strategy, something like that. And Mr. Chang took his red pen and crossed out the word Taiwan and he put in a global company's China strategy. And so it has been in the interest of TSMC to diversify from Taiwan for some time. Uh, They tried to do so in the United States uh, earlier in this century in the, the state of Washington. That was not a very successful venture. The ones in mainland China have been uh, rather successful, quite successful, in fact. But 90% of the world's highest end chips are still made in Taiwan by TSMC. The best stuff they keep at home. They haven't given it to the Mm -hmm. Chinese on the mainland and are not about to give it even to the Americans.
0: Very interesting. I did read somewhere that TSMC at one point had a fifth of its revenue from China. You know, I think that was before the Huawei sanction. Now that's down to a tenth. Are those figures that you've seen as well? Yes. And is that a sign that basically this American strategy is working in at least pulling TSMC out of China?
1: Well, it's working by limiting what TSMC can do in China. That is true. I'm not sure it's pulling out. It's not pulling its manufacturing out. Mm. What it does is uh, to have weakened TSMC as a company just ask any shareholder where the stock price is today compared to where it was you know, 12 months ago, um, or maybe 15 months ago. And so that's not entirely due it, just to that. But the fact is the American sanctions, uh, on Huawei and so on, and the American embrace of Taiwan in recent years, think of Mrs. Pelosi's visit does not actually have the result of making Taiwan more secure nor does it have the result of making more secure this great company, which is at the heart of Taiwan's contemporary economy. In some sense, there's a risk, I think, that TSMC... I don't think this will happen, but there's a certain risk that in the tensions between the United States and China, Taiwan's greatest asset at the moment, TSMC, could be collateral damage.
0: Can you elaborate on that? Um, I think a lot of people in the West would think that what is being done is bolstering Taiwan, It's in support of Taiwan. Why do you think it doesn't make it more secure?
1: Well, I think, for example, the American Chips Act, which has led to subsidies for TSMC to establish a plant in Arizona at the cost of TSMC for $40 billion. This will marginally, and one has to emphasize this, only marginally increase the percentage Of chips of semiconductors at an advanced level that are made in the United States. It'll go from 12% to about 15% of those consumed in the United States would then be made in the United States. And it's a 40 plus billion dollar investment for TSMC. And very few people, including the former chairman, Morris Chang, think that this is a great business investment. It is a geopolitical and perhaps inevitable geopolitical investment. And they will make the best of it because they are an extraordinary company but they are building something of a quality and of a sophistication that the United States has not had, uh, that it takes engineers, trainings. It also takes a, a cultural ecosystem within the world of these really self-contained systems of uh, that manufacture semiconductors in order to succeed. That's very difficult to replicate. Mainland China tried to replicate what TSMC has been doing in Taiwan since 1987. When they established SMIC, on exactly the same model, kind of an industrial policy, industrial park, recruiting somebody named Chang, Chang another John, Richard John, not Morris John, to run it, but that didn't work. It's not an easy thing to do.
0: Now that was my conversation with Bill Kirby. So with these economic concerns in mind, I also spoke to Charlie Parton. Charlie, welcome back to Chinese Whispers. So, we've just heard there from Bill about some of the trading relations between China and Taiwan, which complicates this view that the PRC and the ROC's interests are in some kind of zero sum scenario. To be sure, the Chinese economy is larger than the Taiwanese, and as Bill says, there's a trade imbalance there. But a war, you say, would still be devastating for China's economy, and you've written about it in a paper for the Council on Geostrategy. But before we get into the economic considerations here, I just want to set out your position clearly. When it comes to speculating about an invasion on Taiwan, much of the rhetoric these days is a when, not if, at least in, in the West. But if I understand your position correctly, you are saying that China will not invade Taiwan. Well, certainly,
2: I think that is my position as far as I'm able to look ahead. And and what's it realistic to look ahead? I mean, 10, 12 years possibly, but any further than that, no. Let's be clear that Xi Jinping has not ever set down a deadline for invasion.
0: Uh, That's not what a lot of people think, though. A lot of people think it's 2027, they or 2049, they are the but two I dates that are Well, I think a lot around. of those
2: people need to read more carefully or listen more carefully to what Xi Jinping has said. I mean they they talk about, you know, the modernization of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army by 2027, and that's that's the deadline. I think one or two American generals have even mm-hmm. put it in, in, in 2025. There is no basis for that. I mean, I, I mean if, I, if I can be a little bit boring, what has Xi Jinping said about, about the modernization of the PLA? And, and I'll quote from his actual speech, um, at the Fifth Plenum, I think. By 2027, ensure realization of construction, well, take that to mean what you will, uh, by 2035 modernization of national defence and the army and by 2049 which is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic modernization of national defence and army comprehensively. Mm-hmm. So I think you could say there is a deadline of 2049 in the sense that how can you achieve the second centennial goal of being a modern socialist, civilized, harmonious, yeah,
0: rejuvenating the strong Chinese country
2: and, and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation? If, in your eyes, you haven't got Taiwan back, I mean, of course, there's a lot of historical uh, argument as to whether you get it back or whether you had it in the first place. But that's that's outside the scope of our discussion. So. In theory, that's an implied deadline, but that's so far ahead that um, no one's going to hold a politician to that and Xi Jinping will be something like 96 by that stage anyway. So no, there has not been a declared deadline.
0: Charlie I I think it's worth setting out now for those who don't know your work that you are pretty hawkish on China you know you're not I wouldn't say that you're an apologist on China by any means you were in support of the Huawei ban from the UK infrastructure Mm. you are currently working on how looking at how the internet of things could be hijacked by malicious Chinese actors you know you're pretty clear eyed or if not actually very very critical of what you think Chinese motives are.
2: Yeah, I, I reject the ornithological comparison. I am not some I was <laughs> hawkish once, is not popular once, anymore yes, as a phrase. No, no, I was once described as a moderate hawk. Well, I mean, hawks aren't moderate, but I'm not. I, I think it's wrong. No, I am a defender of the UK's interest, and I think we have every right to to, to do that. And I frequently quote Robert Frost, uh, the American poet, who said that good fences make good neighbors. We we should cooperate with China. We have to work with China on, on many areas. But we've also got to be realistic about what their aims are, the threat that they do pose to us, uh, and, and raise our defences accordingly. And from those strong defences, go out and, and, and work with China wherever we can.
0: Well, let's look at the reasoning that you put forward then. You say that economics is your main concern. Why are the economic consequences for China just so bad if they were to invade?
2: Yes, I be mean, just one other preliminary, mm. Cindy, and that is that, you know, invasion and blockade, and I mean a full blockade to bring taiwan into into the chinese communist party's grasp is the same thing so i don't think we we need to differentiate between those uh, whatever means they, they they do it's it involves a form of arms and, and, and a large dose of coercion and and I, but i think the consequences are equally drastic for China. So yes, there's the military thing. And very briefly, the chances of that failing are really quite high. It's very difficult.
0: I want to get into that in detail in just a bit, but right. staying on economics for now. But
2: but staying on, on, on economics, uh, as we've already heard, Taiwan produces 90% of the world's high level semiconductors and 50 to 60% of all of them. Taiwan exports to China last year, something like $185 billion worth of mainly components that go into Chinese exports or products. Products. Mm-hmm. So if that trade is stopped by an invasion or by a blockade, just magnify that number by whatever you want. I mean, at a, at a zero, let's say nearly two trillion downside for China. Um, but it goes a lot worse than that, because the moment an invasion or a blockade happens, well, first of all, trade and investment dries up. What foreign company is going to trade and invest in, in in China when there's a war or a blockade going on what happens to shipping and insurance rates well first of all ships ain't going to go through that area and as we know you know a third of the world's trade passes through through, through that area
0: I was struck to hear that to read that in your paper actually and also more, more than 90 percent of China's seaborne trade obviously has to go
2: Co- correct so uh, shipping and insurance rates uh, Ships probably won't go but insurance rates if they did would, would be immensely immensely high and so this is all before sanctions. So whether mm. semiconductors and, and the Taiwan semi, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, uh, is so important, its chief executive officer said it would not allow it to fall into the hands of, of the Chinese Communist Party. But even if even if it was quotes handed over, it requires on a very regular basis machinery inputs uh, in intellectual so property. So
0: essentially, it wouldn't work if it the Chinese were to take
2: it over. It okay. wouldn't work. Uh, And and so this is all before sanctions. Now, let's also then bring those in. And I think the Americans would. I think we probably would. The European Union, to some extent, possibly. Even Switzerland has said it would oppose sanctions to the degree that the EU does. And that's Switzerland, for goodness sake. So I, I think that that would just magnify everything. So the world economy would crater. The Chinese economy would crater. What happens inside China is mass unemployment, a lot of very angry, hungry people. And all good things come from the Communist Party. But then the obverse of that coin is that all bad things have to be laid at the Communist Party's door. So without a social security net, there's going to be mass violence. There already is, each year, Mm -hmm. there are a very large number of... Uh, demonstrations and, and, and in mass incidents, as they, as they call them. This would be on a, on a completely different scale, which could be an ex- existential, probably would be an existential threat to the Communist Party's rule and possibly to the life of Xi Jinping. Now, he can calculate that if I can. And I just don't think you're going to take the risk even before you, you, you get t- to, the, to the military side. It's, it's a sure far way of, of um, destroying your own power.
0: And then there's also a question of food and energy security.
2: Very, very important, of course. I mean, security generally, national security is right up there, number one, in in a sense, in in, in Xi Jinping's political priorities. And of those, I think you would say, apart from political security, i.e. the continuation of the party in power, the next ones that they put are food, energy and mineral resources, other other forms of resources which they need for... For, for their, all of
0: which China is a net importer of at the moment, is that, is yeah, that right? Yeah, c-
2: Correct. I yeah. mean, all of them. So uh, it would be a, a form of... Um,
0: Self-sieging. <laughs>
2: self-blockading, yeah. self, self-invasion, if you like. And I think the, the reaction of our governments should be precisely what it was during the Cold War with the nuclear deterrent, mad. Mutually assured destruction. Mm. Um, and the message is, you know, to be reinforced, but I think Xi Jinping will realise it already, if you do this, then these are the economic consequences, irrespective of sanctions, but there will be sanctions, and this will destroy us and you. And that's what the basis of the Cold War standoff was all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see a great deal of difference
0: Mm -hmm. So you would agree with um, I think a UK think tank called the Centre for Economics and Business Research they basically every year they do a world rankings and they predict when China might overtake the US economy Uh, in their latest one of those they said that if China were to invade Taiwan the impact on its exports would be such that it would never overtake the US economy the economic devastation to, to the to its home economy you would agree with that.
2: Uh, I certainly would. But I, I wrote a paper three or four years ago now, um, saying that China would never be the economic, uh, would never be the superpower of the 21st century. And that's based largely on, but to be a superpower, you must have a sustainable economy. And I mm. set forth the reasons as to why China's economy, economic model is not sustainable. Yeah. But that might be a conversation for another time. <laughs>
0: yeah, well that, that certainly is. But just one question on that is actually the other thing to consider with all of this is the Chinese economic context at home, right? Recovering from COVID this year has, hasn't looked nearly as smooth as I think the first few months uh, made some people hope for in, in China. And recently on a podcast, we were talking about youth unemployment, which is nearly mm. one in five uh, for the under 24s in China. So all of this economic consequences that you've just set out would come in a context of an economy that's already kind of spluttering?
2: Yes. I I mean, there's been a lot of attention to the Chinese economy uh, understandably post-COVID, but of course as I and several others have argued, it's the long-term economic failures to reform and, and the nature of the economic model, which is, raises serious questions about long-term performance.
0: And you link these problems to, as you've hinted at already, to the preservation of the CCP back home, that there'll be social unrest, civil unrest. Will the future of the party be under threat then? And is that the real reason why Xi Jinping wouldn't take that risk?
2: I mean, the, the, the maintenance of power by the CCP is lies at the Bottom of everything, that is the number one consideration, and then following from that, you have to prevent mass incidents or or, or, and, and control society such that they they can't arise. And I think that's absolutely basic to all policy, domestic and and foreign. But because of the, I mean, here in the UK, for instance, if you lose the next election well you have the election after that to come Mm -hmm. back or you go on the american lecture circuit or you write a book and you earn lots of money
0: or go to taiwan and continue (laughs) um
2: but if you're xi jinping and the politburo uh, etc and you fall from power the system falls and it may well be that you personally end up dead Mm. i mean that's the the, the that's the nature of of the game that's a rather starker fate than 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 some of our ex-prime ministers have suffered in the last few weeks, even, months,
0: Even if quasi- the is. still feels quite sore. <laughs> um, and Charlie, well, if these are the considerations then, how do you read China's moves to de-risk some of these things, as it were? So, for example, finding alternative energy routes such as through Russia on the mainland or becoming more self-sufficient on semiconductors in order to rely less on the global supply. You know, all of these measures are taken in order to limit how damaging those economic consequences are. Is it not yes, for Yes, you're, you're, you're now
2: venturing, Cindy, into the into the D word, um, and it could be de-risking, or decoupling, or diverging, whatever begins with D. I'm sure
0: listeners have bingo cards at the ready on yes. this podcast. Um,
2: but but and, and indeed, um, whether it's China or, or, or our countries, that process is going on. But how far it can go in reality, mm. given the completely interwoven nature of globalization and how fast it can go. And this comes back to where we started. I mean, you know, an invasion or blockade of Taiwan in the next decade or 12 years, just just don't see it. Because you cannot, I think, unpick those, those dependencies. And you mentioned China's energy, but it would take a very, very long time to get a very significant amount from Russia that you weren't vulnerable elsewhere, and you mm. still would be. I mean, Russia cannot supply all all China's long-term enge- energy needs, nor would China want it to. I mean, a dependency on Russia would be a very risky thing to do. I mean, China is, I think, deliberately spreading around its energy supplies, whether that's from Central Asia, Russia, the Middle East, Venezuela, mm. uh, etc. So, you know, this form of... Um, Chinese de-risking or divergence or decoupling has, has severe limits.
0: What about then these countries that are not just Russia that are relatively friendly with China have um relatively sustainable trading relationships but that are not necessarily going to align with the west on sanctions if China were to invade Taiwan for example we've just seen the brazilian new president lula come back from beijing other south american countries are also relatively friendly towards china you know we do see a some something of a reemergence of a non-aligned group of countries in the Russia-Ukraine situation, presumably more countries than that would support China in any global situation over Taiwan.
2: I think these countries wish to, to main, maintain a foot in both camps, so I, I agree with you. I don't think they would join sanctions. But as we, you know, as I started by saying, sanctions is, or uh, well, sanctions are, as it were, the you know the topping. The main cake is the disruption to trade and investment, mm-hmm. and the main markets. Uh, and suppliers, etc. For, for many commodities and, and components are the U- European Union, America, Taiwan for semiconductors, etc. So the the economic crating that I talked about earlier would happen irrespective of whether the sorts of countries that you're mentioning would, would nevertheless want to pile in. But, you know, again, you know, the shipping, the insurance... And that's before America right. I- I itself starts getting possibly nasty. I mean, it would be very easy to strangle China's energy. Very easy indeed. Much of it has to go through the Malacca and the Sundar mm-hmm. Straits, for instance. Yeah. You could start you know, stopping ships.
0: So the American military could go th- so far. Yes. Yeah. So,
2: so, uh, but I, I don't think it's necessary to go that far because I think the economic effects that we've talked about already would already have occurred. Mm-hmm. But they could. And that's that's the threat.
0: Mm-hmm. And and you, you mentioned earlier the military concerns. So, so let's let's talk about the military concerns. It's often compared to Ukraine, the Ukrainian invasion. But actually, it's not the same situation at all to invade Taiwan, is it?
2: No, I mean, I think when Mr. Putin decided to go into Ukraine, he saw wide open planes and was assured by his people that it would be over by Christmas or, in fact, a lot earlier. Uh, Whereas, of course, Taiwan is completely different. Seaborne invasions are extremely difficult. You know, the UK found that uh, in a small matter in the Falklands. But this is against a far better prepared defensive position. It's a very rough sea. The the number of days when when you can actually be confident per year is not many. I mean, you know, a couple of months worth landing on 14 beaches against topography that's Easily defended. You've got increasingly a different type of defence. Taiwan can't compete in conventional, but enough to make it by no means a certainty that you would win. Even allowing for whether the Americans would or would not would not would not come in, and even if you did then take over, were successful, what are you going to have left? A, a, a population that may or may not resist you quite strongly. And then, of course, you get to uh, move, move on from that into the economic matters that we talked of. So I think most uh, military analysts that I've spoken to have said you would need to mobilise something in the region of two million men. Wow. I mean, that's including, I presume, all, all the, the, the back logistics and all the effort to get everything ready for, for the actual spearhead in, invasion. That's going to be something that you can't do sneakily it will be Mm. very visible it will take time it will allow other defensive forces the americans to 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 take whatever measures they decide to take it's a very big risk okay they might the pla might win it's not got any combat experience and these and these are very very difficult operations but there's a good chance they would lose and the consequences of that i think would be catastrophic for the communist party and for xi jinping
0: and all of our discussions so far um, relies on this kind of risk calculus, right? We're, we're relying on the leaders up top to be rational and not to be impulsive and since the Russian invasion, you know, lots of people have pointed to the invasion and said Putin's clearly got into his head, got too many yes-men around him or not involved critics in with his decision making. Some of the same can be said for Xi Jinping, especially after the last party congress. What do you think about that, this argument that she could just behave impulsively against his own interests
2: yes, it's a sort of irrational side of things. I mean actually, to be fair, i don't think Putin was necessarily that irrational i I mean if, if he believed that his military was that much superior and he has as, as we know his reasons for going in, uh, it may have seemed at the time a rational behavior i don 't think it would seem rational to the Chinese Communist Party to take that enormous risk, which we've just talked about going into Taiwan. Uh, And and so I think the comparisons anyway are are, are very different. For instance, I wouldn't profess to be a a Russian expert, but I think the degree of control that Putin has and the degree of autocracy far exceeds even what Xi Jinping has. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, it's not just that it exists, it works pretty well, it's systematic, it's structured uh, throughout all levels of, of government. So Uh, you know, it's by no means a foregone conclusion that Xi Jinping can just say, well, I've decided this morning to invade Taiwan, so get on with it. Uh, There might well be...
0: Because even now the forces, yeah, the institutional forces of the party. And then
2: you have to consider the circumstances in which that sort of behaviour might come about. And people say, oh, well, the situation got so bad domestically that he needs to distract people. And you play the nationalist card. Well... Uh, I mean, first of all, if the situation's that bad, you probably would be concentrating on using your repressive forces, of which the PLA is, of course, since power goes out of the barrel uh, of a gun, the final you know, bastion of, of your thing. You, you probably want to, to concentrate more on, on controlling the domestic situation. But as I've already said, send your forces abroad to distract, and that just is the quickest way, I think, of destroying you and your country, through the economics, even if you're not defeated militarily. So I I think it it goes beyond the impulsive into the very, very irrational. I don't think there's any sign that Xi Jinping is irrational. Mm. uh, And I don't think there's any sign that the Communist Party as a whole is either weak enough or irrational enough to to, to allow him to be irrational.
0: Okay. It's very optimistic. I I like it.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm not usually... You know, yeah, no, but you're accused not. of being an optimist <laughs> on the grounds that, in my view, optimists must spend their life being totally always disappointed by how badly things turn out whereas we pessimists things always turn out slightly better than we hope for um, so i feel very sorry for optimists
0: <laughs> okay so charlie when we as we finish up then i want to ask you what the two sides will do next because the ccp still wants to have taiwan reunified and clearly that's something that the west wants to prevent so what do you think that the party will do if invasion slash blockade is not what it will do mm. Well,
2: and again, you know, just to finish off on the subject of optimism, I, I'm not optimistic about um, what's going to happen in the next decade. I mean, short of invasion or blockade, I think we're in for a very rough time. Mm. So so we will see a, a lot more military activity because the aim of the Chinese Communist Party is to convince, is to break the will of the Taiwanese people and to convince them that unification or as they say reunification Mm -hmm. is inevitable and irresistible and similarly they wish to convince the world of of that so military exercises posturing short-term blockades which don't too long interfere with your import of necessary components etc and um, we're going to see a a, a a lot more of that i think taiwan itself is going to be under a lot of pressure there's been some talk about revamping the secession law of 2005 i think the hong kong national security law is is, is perhaps a good model for that which will put more pressure on taiwanese individuals and companies um, in inside china well uh the hong kong national security law has application globally
0: Although that hasn't been used as such, even though in law it's obviously ambiguous. But it would
2: be perfectly possible mm-hmm. for someone to be arrested in a country friendly to China.
0: Like in Thailand, for example. In Thailand
2: or Zimbabwe or, you know, anything beginning from A to Z and, 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 then, and then sent to China. Um, so that, that's what, I mean, I think there'll be a lot more mm-hmm. pressure on, on, on Taiwanese companies, embargoes of goods which don't affect too much. China's own, own economy. And I think we'll see countries, foreign countries, our countries and our companies, also being put under a, a, a lot of pressure. And there'll be a graduation of, of things. So you know, would it surprise me if Jinmen and Mazu, which are um, islands, sets of islands, very close to the Chinese mainland, which belong to Taiwan, mm. either in a fit of patriotism, um, open and close in commerce, commas, demanding to, to return to the motherland, or having their water cut off, or whatever it is, supplies cut off, so that they are uh, absorbed into China. There's the Pratus Islands, halfway between Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, which currently have a very small Taiwanese garrison on. If the Chinese took that back, would that be sufficient cause for the sort of economic consequences and worries to follow that I've talked about, or America to take a position? I think, you know, people talk about the Penghu Islands, which are off quite close to the, to the main island of Taiwan. I think that would be, as a county of Taiwan, that would be perceived as an invasion uh, and might might cause in undue worry. It would, would require more resources. You'd but require. the Chinese
0: side would be pushing, basically pushing at the red line.
2: But there, there will be a, a, a lot of pushing. So it's not going to be a comfortable decade by any means. But my point is that it will fall short of of invasion and that both Taiwan and countries like ours need to have the will to protect uh, not least because of this is 24 million people mm. who have the right to decide their own future that's something we believe in 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 very strongly but also because of the need to protect the semiconductor industry and ultimately to protect the strategic position uh, America is our ally America's position in the Pacific western pacific will become untenable if China sees Taiwan because Taiwan is an integral part of the first island chain and that makes it a stepping stone to the second island chain and if you start getting military and technical a submarine base on Taiwan means the PLA navy if it had one could very quickly get into very deep water and escape detection whereas at the moment of course they go out through Hainan or, or, or other ports and are fairly locatable in, in, in shallow waters. So there are a whole form of military reasons also and strategic reasons why Taiwan is is very important.
0: And what does that support for Taiwan's status quo look like when it comes to countries like ours?
2: Well, I, I don't think we should be cowed by, by Chinese pressure. Now, our, our Minister of Trade went to Taiwan in November. I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we seem to have a sort of unwritten policy that... As it were, the top five of both sides don't visit each other. Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, Foreign Affairs, Defence, etc. But 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 I think that we should be firming up all, all forms of other relationships, whether that's trade, science and technology, investment, both you know the political but backing to that as well as the, as the substance of it, and keeping up the pressure and the noise about Taiwan. Needing to be involved in matters of extreme global importance, I mean mm. the World Health Authority um, is is a very obvious example. But we we have the CPTPP, this Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, of which Taiwan is a candidate member, as is indeed China. Taiwan is eminently suited to that. We should be supporting them. Uh, it will be very unpopular with China. So there's a whole range of measures. I mean, my favourite, which of course won't happen, is that the, the G7 should agree that the next meeting would be held in Taiwan. It would be very difficult indeed.
0: You don't think that would be pro- overly provocative? Of course it
2: is, uh, and, indeed, and, I, and I'm being slightly facetious, but, but underlying it is a point that that expression of unity is very important. Now, I mean, there are other ways of expression, expressing unity, and I think this is, as you rightly say, Cindy, as you, you're sort of grinning at me and saying, you are joking, aren't you, Charlie? Yes, I sort of am. But it, but actually, if it happened, it would be very difficult for the Chinese to make a lot of noise about it. Well, they'd make a lot of noise. But what exactly would they do? It'd be interesting, but it won't happen.
0: You don't worry that it would provoke an inv- invasion?
2: I don't, for the reasons that we've discussed already.
0: Well, you say that, but I feel like... When, when you know, when, when we're talking about that particular step and other steps that go over a certain line of actually just diplomatic recognition for Taiwan in the West, wouldn't the calculus change in Xi Jinping's mind in the sense of economic consequences are here very very difficult, the military situation is here very very difficult, but if I don't do something, the West is going to be peeling Taiwan further and further away from the People's Republic of China look at what they're doing at the G7. You don't think that would change his No, I've been, I've been
2: very provocative, over-provocative <laughs> over, over here. Um, no, I'm taking but, you too seriously. <laughs> but, but And I think, actually, there's one thing we haven't mentioned. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have said that if Taiwan declares independence, they will yeah. invade. Taiwan, of course, says that it's, in to all intents and purposes, an independent and sovereign country, but it's not going to be foolish enough as to make an open declaration and
0: Yeah, and before we finish up then Charlie, um, I also wondered about the next 12 months for the situation because two events are happening, the Taiwanese election in January next year uh, and then followed by that the American election which actually might just be a bit over 12 months away. So... I'm Keen to hear your thoughts, really, on on how the Taiwanese election coming up. I mean, presumably, in my mind, that probably holds off any Chinese action anyway, because if the KMT come back in power, the Chinese would prefer that. Uh, and then the second part of the question is, what happens if Trump gets elected again?
2: <laughs> yes, I mean, it'd be very. It's going to be very interesting to see um, Taiwan's election presidential election is is set for so for four years, January next year. 2020, of course, uh, and the run-up to that um, moves that the Chinese made transformed the situation in the favour of the DPP of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, uh, as Taiwanese people reacted to what they perceived as Chinese interference, or whatever, so will they make that mistake again? It's not beyond the bounds of possibility that they that they will. But I think if they've got any sense, they'll they'll soft pedal until then. Whoever wins. Um, even well I think whoever wins, I don't see a great deal of difference in actual outcomes because you know polls have been very clear amongst the Taiwanese people that support for unification of one form or other is in the very low single figures, and even those that consider themselves and i and I want to say very low I think I, last poll I think was one point something percent if my memory serves, uh, which increasingly it doesn't and in terms of those that consider themselves Chinese, as opposed to Taiwanese or whatever, um, it was something like six point seven percent, I think. So the KMT would, if it win, would still have to take a, account of that. What what happens when if if Mr Trump comes back into power? Well, I'm I'm thinking of Alice in Wonderland, where the Queen of Hearts throws the whole game of cards up into the air. But again, I, irrespective of 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 the Politics of it all. I come back again to to the economics of it, mm. and and that an invasion or or blockade of of, of Taiwan aimed to, to to the same effect will crater the world economy. Whatever Mr. Trump says or does, should he come back into power, uh, and that would be absolutely devastating to the world economy and the Chinese economy, and they won't take that risk.
0: And and Charlie, just very 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 finally then. How confident are you that this invasion is not going to happen? Would you bet money on it?
2: Well, the normal expression is I bet my house on it, but I think my, my, my heirs and, and would be a bit unwilling for me to do that. But I'd certainly bet an awful lot of money on it. Maybe my pension, Cindy.
0: Okay, very good. Charlie Parton, thank you very much. That was my conversation with Charlie Parton. So, will there be an invasion? Well, you must decide for yourselves on your conclusion, but I hope that this episode has at least presented another side to the conversation.